Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Hello and welcome to the HPP podcast. My name is Maury Chom and I am delighted to be the guest host of this episode. I am the Director for Population Focus Prevention Early Intervention at RAMS in the Bay Area of California, and I am also a member of the Health Promotion Practice Editorial Board. Today's episode is a part of HPP's May 2023 celebration of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islanders Heritage Month. And today I am calling in from Berkeley, California, land of the Ohlone. I am joined by Dr. Jerusha, Jerry Nelson Peterman, she, her, Dr. Lindive Sibeko, Nora Tang, and Dr. Lorraine Codero co-authors of a paper published by HPP Online in November 2022 titled Building on Community Research Partnerships and Training Students in Multi-Phase Community-Based Participatory Research Study with Young Women of Cambodian Heritage in Massachusetts. They are going to help us explore their experiences in the community-based research with Cambodian Americans in Massachusetts. Before we get started, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and have them share where they are calling from. Let us start with Dr. Jerusha Nelson-Peterman. Hi, I'm Jerry Nelson-Peterman. Pronouns are she, her, and I am from the land of the Nipmuc. I'm a professor of nutrition and the chair of nutrition and health studies at Framingham State University which is a small regional public institution of higher ed in Framingham, Massachusetts. And um, Dr. Sebeko. Oh, good afternoon. I'm Lindiwa Sebeko, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition in the University of Massachusetts, in Amherst, Massachusetts. Department of Nutrition is situated within the School of Public Health and Health Sciences. And I am calling in on a relatively beautiful day in this beautiful land. Thank you. And Nora? Hi, everyone. This is Nora, Nora Tang, calling in from Lowell, Mass. And I helped with some of the research projects with Dr. Sebeko, Dr. Cordero, and Jerusha. And I am currently with the Lowell Community Health Center. Great, thank you. And Dr. Cordero. Hello, everybody. My name is Lorraine Cordero. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition at UMass Amherst. And formerly, I worked for Smai Kum Khmai in Lowell, Massachusetts. So it's the Cambodia Mutual Assistance Association of Greater Lowell where I was the director of the youth service program 
and Nora was one of my youth in that program some 20 years ago. I was, so, I was. <laughs> so we have a true academic community partnership that I hope you will enjoy through this podcast. All right. And your paper and the project describe community-based work with the Cambodian community in Lowell, Massachusetts. I am Cambodian myself, but my experience and that of my family were as refugees assigned to California. I imagine that being resettled to Massachusetts was likely both similar and very different. Can you tell us about the Cambodian experience in Lowell? I think it would be great to gain an understanding of generally when did resettlement happen in Lowell, Massachusetts, and how did Lowell, Massachusetts become the hub for a majority of Cambodian Americans living in the United States? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So resettlement really began in the late 1970s and into the early 80s. And Lowell, Massachusetts was a designated site for resettlement by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And families that came in at that time and individuals that were resettled into Lowell at that time were entering a city that was economically depressed. It's an old textile industrialized city. So there would be little resistance to refugees in cities like that that were impoverished. And they helped to build the infrastructure of the city over the time of their resettlement and bring back a really vibrant economic development model through small businesses throughout the city. And Lowell today is a remarkably different place than it was in the 1980s and in the 1990s. So much so that we were featured as one of the primary cities to showcase Cambodian heritage in 1998 in Philadelphia for a national award for cities. And it was all centered around Cambodian culture and the Southeast Asian Water Festival, which brought hundreds and thousands of people to Lowell, Massachusetts in August every year. And Nora, if you would share because your family resettled in Lowell and you're part of a very large family of brilliantly handsome brothers. And so if you would share a little bit about what that resettlement was like for your mom in particular. For her, it definitely wasn't easy when we finally arrived to Lowell. Again, it was just, it was just her, seven boys. And at the time there weren't too many programs and resources available. And the Cambodian Mutual Assistance Association definitely was one of the places that we were able to reach out to for assistance. Nora, what year did your mother and your, is it seven siblings? Seven of her Six children? siblings. Yep, six, six siblings. siblings. So there was seven with me. When did you all arrive into the United States? We came in 87. I believe we landed in the East Coast first. And then we had a sponsor that helped us get settled in New York. And then from New York, it was to Pennsylvania for a couple of years. And then we finally came to Lowell, I believe, in 1991. And how did your family find the Cambodian Mutual Aid Association? Oh, I think at that time was through school. It was through school, I believe. That's really great. 
And it's important to just recognize that the Cambodian Mutual Assistance Association was formed in 1984 by the refugee population. Jerush, I wonder if you would just touch base on some of that history because you also work for the CMA. So CMA started out specifically, as Lorraine was saying, as a refugee organization to help refugees, especially Cambodians who resettled. I worked for CMAA in the mid-2000s, so about a decade after Lorraine did. And while there had been originally focused on helping people resettle in the United States, the big flux of refugees that had refugee status for Cambodians was between the late 1980s and the early 1990s. Starting in the early 1990s, most refugees had arrived in the United States, and there were still some members of the Cambodian community coming to the United States, but most of them had asylee status as opposed to refugee status. So there was a shift in the kind of focus that CMA had or Samakum Kamai had. Lorraine, you worked in adolescent health and adolescent partnerships. I worked in a public health capacity. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. And I was originally hired by CMAA to work on a big REACH 2010 grant that was overseen by where Nora currently is working, the Lowell Community Health Center, but CMAA was a partner. So we were focusing on reducing heart disease and diabetes among Cambodians in Massachusetts. So really the focus had changed over time with the needs of the population in the community. And one of the things that while I was there, CMAA was actively looking for what population needs were and making sure that the grants that they were part of were serving the needs of the community. And because Lowell, Massachusetts is a city of immigrants, it's a gateway city in the state of Massachusetts, it had historically had French Canadians, Irish Americans, Cubans, El Salvadorians, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and then the wave of Cambodian refugees that came in followed by asylees and then immigration through marriage or through the bringing of families from Cambodia really enriched the city's cultural heritage. And CMAA grew with that in that it then branched out to serve many different populations, including having a young parenting populations for all population groups below and is now serving other refugee groups that are coming in, whether it's from the Ukraine or Afghanistan or West Africa or other parts of the world, is it's really, really branched out to serve a much broader population. Yeah, and I think, Lorraine, one of the points you made about how Lowell is historically a city of immigrants, it's been defined as a city of immigrants over generations. And I think that's one of the things that, Maury, I'm not sure if this might be a little bit different than your experience growing up in California, but because Lowell is a such a city of wave after wave of immigrants, I think a lot of the experience there, you know, is defining as what wave of immigrants or what waves of immigrants are, are in Lowell. Gosh, I can only imagine the richness that that adds to the mm. community and society in general. Now, I know that Cambodians in California experience severe and persistent health disparities, particularly related to the trauma of their experiences in Cambodia 
and their refugee and resettlement experiences. PTSD and depression are common, particularly among those who lived through the decades of violence, war, genocide of the Khmer Rouge. Now your work focused on the younger generation, particularly young women ages 15 to 30 years old. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience of that group? Yes, yeah, so our prior work, this builds on prior work that we had done with both older populations and focus groups we had done not only with the elderly, but with parents of children with disabilities in the Cambodian community. And so this was a group that we hadn't previously captured very well, which was young women between the ages of 15 to 30. And the experiences of this group were very diverse in that we had some that were at extremely high risk for poverty and food insecurity and others who had a strong social network that enabled them to get secure employment and to be able to establish themselves and reach some level of financial stability. And that range was really important. We also had diversity in the range of participants that were either born in the US and those that were married to individuals and then brought from Cambodia to the US and therefore didn't have their biological family structure of support and were mainly depending on their spouse's family for support around pregnancy and parenting and other types of access to resources. And maybe Jerusha, you could expand on that, but I, I would also ask Nora after that, if you could talk a little bit about those individuals because you helped us recruit those women into the study. Yeah, we all kind of came in with our different research interests. So I'm a dietitian and nutrition is very much my focus, especially in the context of the U.S. food environment, because the U.S. food environment has this situation where even with inflation now, food is relatively really inexpensive. But at the same time, there's a high abundance of ultra-processed foods, and it is harder for people from whatever background to get foods that might be more important to them that are healthful and cultural foods. And so that's kind of my perspective. Lorraine is an adolescent health expert, and Linduay brings in maternal and child health. So all three of us were kind of coming from our different angles to look at this as we brought it our research plan together. I think maybe we could talk you know, more about the things that the three of us saw from our different perspectives after we hear a little bit from Nora, who was instrumental in making this successful, helping us recruit and as a photographer and just as a great member of the team. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jerusha. As far as the recruiting went, pretty much started with just my small circle of friends. And they just kind of spread the word through mouth and definitely having the social media helped a lot too in the end. And uh, yeah, everybody had a lot of fun in those courses that we had, the classes that we had together and taking the photos, that was really fun too. Yeah, <laughs> that's really all yeah. I Yeah, I, you know, I think some of the things that I would remember, Nora, and you can correct me on this, is some of the young women that you recruited had really difficult lives. And I think this is really important because 
there is no way that our research, our academic research team could have brought these women into research. The vast majority had never been a part, like 80% had never been part of a research study in their lives. So they were new to research. And Nora, you really helped us reach some of the most vulnerable women in the Cambodian community. And I wonder if you could speak about that, both from maybe uh, using Melody as one of the case examples. Yeah, Melody, she was awesome. Like you said, a lot of them, most of them have never been a part of a research before. And she was really helpful. She actually, she enjoyed being a part of it. She helped get a few people as well to participate in the project and study. Her family, there was a lot going on. But yeah, it's kind of, it's a little hard to talk about her family, but um, there was definitely uh, strong support for her as well. And I believe there's still a video online about the little interview that we'd have with her. I can definitely send send the link to that. But yeah, she's she was awesome. She was <laughs> melody. Right. We had one participant that described what it was like to live with parents who had gone through the Khmer Rouge genocide and parents that were working two or three jobs. In particular, one participant talked about her mother working and coming home extremely tired, but always remembering to make sure that there was food on the table. Uh -huh. um, but she was a single mother. Yeah. And we had other women that faced a lot of challenges when it came to raising children and getting childcare coverage so that they could participate in the labor force. And then we had women express where they felt the highest amount of discrimination in their lives. And we were surprised to see that they did not feel a very high level of discrimination from their healthcare providers. And that's particularly because Lowell has done a lot of training of healthcare providers on Cambodian culture and practices. However, they did see a very high level of discrimination from the school system. And when they were engaging with any of the systems that provide public benefits, like the DTA, which is Department of Transitional, Transitional Assistance. Right. We also saw that food security or access to adequate food for an active, healthy lifestyle was really low. We had a lot of women that expressed real hardship in being able to access adequate food and being able to access quality food. Because although there are a lot of really great Cambodian-owned and Cambodian-focused markets in the area, the cost of cultural foods is still really high. But we also saw that the young women really valued fresh fruits and fresh vegetables, and that they really wanted to incorporate them into their lifestyle. So lack of knowledge about what's nutritionally adequate, there wasn't a lack of knowledge. It was a lack of access. Thank you for setting the stage for us. Let's turn now to your recent health promotion practice paper. This is part of the larger Cambodian Women's Health Study. 
a community-based project between the Cambodian Mutual Aid Association and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Tell us about this study and how you each came to be a part of it, particularly the components you present in the paper. So one of the things that was really important about this study is both Jerusha and I had already worked in the community as practitioners for a period of time before coming into academia. And our purpose in coming into academia was to use research to alleviate some of the societal issues that we saw that were providing barriers to individuals in accessing food and their access to quality health care and barriers to poverty alleviation. And so we started this study through a series of focus groups originally that were based on prior work. So my prior work was out of Wellesley College and Jerusha's prior work was for her dissertation at Tufts University. While I was a, a staff member at CMAA. Right. And so we based this on a scaffolding idea of building on data that was previously collected and strengthening that data as we move forward. We envisioned the ability to then merge all these data sets and be able to generate ideas from a larger sample size as a result of that. So this study started relatively small with the examination of food security through USDA funds. And we began by looking at food security in the Cambodian American population. And we did a combination of focus groups as well as survey research. The most compelling part of the study is the engagement of the community. So we fully engaged the staff of the CMAA from the executive director to every individual staff member, both in helping us design the study and plan for it. We hired one of the staff members initially to help us in collecting data. We contracted the agency to translate all the materials and we provided the agency with a partnership fee to honor their work in allowing us to sit within the CMAA and to work in tandem with them in reaching the community. In addition, we then hired additional staff members to help us with data collection. And in many cases, the data collection happened bilingually. So I think I'd like to sort of step back a little bit and talk a little bit about how I got to enter the project, as well as, you know, how I met Jerusha and Lorraine. So I was a new faculty hire in the Department of Nutrition in 2013. And by that point, the study was in full swing. And as we got to know each other and understood and started to recognize that we all the three of us had the same vision of what community-engaged research looked like. Then Lorraine and Jerusha were kind enough to say, hey, would you like to come in and participate in this research? Because it is in young women and you have maternal and child health research interest. I've worked in the community as a practitioner, but I've also conducted various research in different communities. 
And so I brought that into this new collaboration. But I think what was really interesting, the only reason that it worked, because it really was an intercultural introduction. And I know we'll talk about that a little later, but I think it's appropriate to bring it up now, was the point of entry and the introduction to the community. And what really delighted me is that my introduction to the Lowell community and specifically to the Cambodian community really happened in the same way that all my most effective and impactful community work has happened, which is really a humility to learn from the community and taking time to sort of build trust within the community and being present at various community events and spaces. So I had that introduction as well, was thrown into the research and assisted with the data collection. But as far as the framework we're using, we're really following the framework of a community-based participatory research where there was really this respect and implementation of this mutual beneficial collaboration and partnership with CMAA and to really honor not only to have all the research variables that we were collecting, but also to really honor the experiential knowledge of the participants in the study. I was really impressed with that. So that really, you know, the CBPR part of it really took care of itself because it was how we were functioning. Yeah, I think, you know, when I first read your paper, I thought how amazing it is to really let the community lead and guide the process in partnership with you all. Because, you know, sometimes people talk about CBPR, but it doesn't it's, it's not truth, but as I was reading, I envisioned how the partnerships worked and I am in awe because most people who say they do CBPR, not always does it match the CBPR ethics and approach and framework. And I know from my own experience, how valuable authentic multicultural partnerships are for the Cambodian community as well as how important it is to build Cambodian community capacity, particularly leadership that comes from the community. In this kind of work, being aware of and intentional about positionality is absolutely critical for everyone. How did you grapple with this? And more specifically, how did you navigate the predictable as well as the unpredictable challenges of being insiders and outsiders? And what were your guiding principles and North Star? I was thinking through this question as we were getting ready for the podcast. And I was thinking about how, as Lorraine said, I originally worked as a staff member and my first research experience with CMAA was as a staff member. So that was back in the mid 2000s and to be involved in research, it was crafted into the structure of my work. And what that meant is that I didn't have to be always thinking about, is this extra tip? Is this not extra tip? Because it was the work that I was doing. I was able to convince the funders of the 
grant that we were on that they should put some more money into research so that we could use the research to help promote the goals that they had. For me, it's gotten more challenging over the years because I'm not staff anymore. I moved out of being a staff person and doctoral student, which is, you know, being a doctoral student is a somewhat difficult and challenging situation to be in. I moved into being an academic faculty member which when you're junior is still challenging, but still is a position of power. And now I've even moved farther into being a senior faculty member. I don't live in the next town over anymore, even in the same town. I'm at an institution where I'm working in administratively now instead of focused on research. And my institution that I'm at is more teaching focused and less research focused. So all of these changes have made it more difficult for me to think about positionality and ensuring that it's not an extra tip process. One of the things that has been important to me is to be able to see how, in particular, Lorraine continues to navigate community partnerships with Lowell and some that she's doing in Springfield and to see how Lindy navigates her community partnerships in Springfield. So I know it's not directly with CMAA, but to be able to see what they're doing to keep those partnerships strong, even though they've also moved into positions that have more power, have more resources, and that are the people who start to, in the positions that start to be extrative and to see them that they're not doing that. Can I add, Maury, that not everybody does community-engaged work with integrity. And I think that if you choose that as the research that really speaks to you, the research that you are passionate about, regardless of where you move in power, I think that never goes away. That authenticity, that respect of community, even when you're not as present in the community as you would like to be, People see authenticity, they see who to trust, they know who to trust, because you you know, you know enter those spaces with humility, regardless of what your power or your position is. And so even though we now have these administrative roles that pull us away, you know, our joy when we call each other and text each other with joyous talk is because we've been at a focus group that we facilitated or we attended a meeting in the community and it touched that part of us that reminds us why we got into community work. So I'd like to challenge my colleague, Jerry, and say that part of who she is never really goes away. And I think as somebody who's always loved engaging with the community, mobilizing in the community and developing capacity in the community and being humble enough to listen, to know that I'm going to get far more knowledge from community members than anything that I bring academically. I could recognize authenticity in the two of them. And so even though I was a new assistant professor and I had these wonderful professors who were inviting me to participate in their research, and you know, you want to hit the ground running, I would have excused myself if I didn't feel like they were doing it in the way that would align with what I was doing. So I don't think it ever goes away, Jerry. I think it's 
it stays there. I, I really believe that if I was to take you into the community that I work in now, with the issues that we're addressing, that you'd know how to behave. So I think it goes beyond that in many, many ways. The Cambodian community is an absolutely incredible community to work in. There is not a day that goes by that I think our team is not humbled by the experiences of many elders in the community and their children and their grandchildren in building resilience in the dominant culture that rejects them. And in a country that is partially responsible for bombing Cambodia to begin with. So that positionality of the community and their generosity in inviting us to collect data is not ours to own. And the data, this paper including, is not ours either. And I think we take that very seriously, that we're just merely facilitators of knowledge and that we're hoping to promote community voice in ways that resonates not with the academic community as much as it resonates with the community itself. And that for us is the cornerstone of why we do this work. It's so that- who we feel responsible to, sorry. We're responsible to it and we're outsiders. And perhaps because we're outsiders, we don't carry the trauma that many of our colleagues within the Cambodian community do. And we're able to disseminate and talk about this research in ways that we hope is protective of the community that we have worked with. And so I think that is really an important part of that because we come from three different cultural heritage backgrounds as researchers. And many of our own people have been traumatized in various ways through the colonial experience. And yet we're very privileged academics in the sense that we have our PhDs and we are all in administrative positions at the university having Jerusha is a full professor, I'm heading to become a full professor and Lindy will be on her way to becoming a full professor as well. And as women achieving that status, that's already pretty remarkable. But as a multicultural team, I think we bring to the community one avenue by which their voice can be heard in academic circles. And I think it was really important for us to have this really strong training program as part of the research, which was our attempt to be able to model to students ways in which we wanted them to think about community-engaged research, because we understood that they got the theoretical, but really rarely got the experiential. And this study allowed for that. It was really rich in that. And we had a lot of fun too. We always have a lot of yeah. fun. 
Lindy, I'm so glad you brought in the training part, though, because we developed a rigorous training for our research team of students. And there were a couple of components that I think are unique here. One is that we did have our community research assistant was a person to whom our students answered as an authority so that we were flipping on its head who got to have the authority in the power in the situation. And the second part is we were really purposeful and structured in how we put together the training and how we worked the students into being able to get into the hands-on part of the research process. So while we come from our different perspectives, we were all at that time in the Department of Nutrition and nutrition as a field tends to be pretty homogeneous. A lot of white women, a lot of white women from middle class or even upper middle class backgrounds. And so for us to really make sure that we were grounding our students in the community and in some practices that they would be able to take forward into their careers in a discipline that is not diversifying, still not diversifying, to at least be able to instill some cultural humility and training into those who would be working in the field later. That was an important part of our structure in the research process. Yeah, I for me, as a Cambodian-American, a daughter of genocide survivor and a refugee immigrant myself, you know, my family's been here for over 40 years. And yet, oftentimes, we are lumped in as the larger Asian-American. We are good at math. We achieve academically very highly, but it's not the case. And so I appreciate you all so much for uplifting the Cambodian narrative through health and nutrition and dietary practices, because I think that for a long time, many of, I, I can't speak on behalf of the Cambodians who are in Lowell, Massachusetts, but certainly Cambodians in California, we feel invisible. We feel isolated in our own communities. My mom, who has been in the United States since 1981, still does not call this her country because she has so much challenges and barriers in navigating just the basic needs. And so the fact that you all have taken so much time and poured your heart and soul into this work in partnership with the Cambodian community and letting them also have what Dr. Cordero had mentioned that have ownership of this is so meaningful. And I can speak on behalf of my people, how much gratitude I have towards just you all being able to elevate some of the strengths as well as some of the issues of our community. So thank you. Thank you all so much for what you have shared and for the work that you are doing. Before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to add? So I would like to add that a big part of what we do is also training our students. And student training was a critical part of this work. We hired as much as we could Cambodian American young women into the project who were students at UMass Amherst. And so we were able to hire three of them on the project. 
and to engage them in data collection on their own people. And so that was a really important part. We also hired other Asian Americans to engage and that engagement didn't always go as well because I think one of the most important things to realize is the Cambodian community is not homogeneous. There's such a variety of people and heritage lines within the Cambodian community. And discrimination and racism is across the board. So people have perceptions of what it is to be a refugee or what it is to be darker skin. And so those layers influence how perhaps some of our students would work with the community. They influence perceptions of the community off each other within the community itself. And so we were really cognizant of that and worked really hard around the issues of ensuring cultural humility. And we were listening to a speaker yesterday. It was about remaining culturally humble in the process of doing good research. And I think that is the cornerstone. We may not always achieve it, but individuals like Nora definitely hold us accountable. And staff of the CMAA absolutely held us accountable, whether it was mispronouncing or miscooking <laughs> some of the things that we thought we were good Cambodian cooks here or sometimes making some mistakes culturally in terms of practice. So we had a lot of accountability. And I think one of the best things is when a community is not shy about telling you what is to be expected when you enter the community, it means that we have landed as researchers. Yeah. I think I would like to add, especially for folks who are in academia, and engaged in community-based participatory research or community-based research or things that they're engaged in, to keep in mind that the power and money of institutions are real. And we acknowledge we have pressures as academics to get publications out to do research. And even so, we have to be cognizant that the communities that we're engaged in, if we're going to do this kind of work, it needs to be community first. Of course, we care about our careers. It's really important, but it has to be community first. And we can't pretend that we don't carry this cloak of power and money with us because we really do. And I think the fun part for me is my husband is Cambodian. And so my children are Cambodian heritage young people today. And so part of that was to really think about where my place was in the process of ensuring that my children who are Cambodian heritage children would also be part of that larger story of research. And that I could tell some of these stories of the kids that were in my youth program or the community agency for which I worked. But as a researcher, I was an integrated member of the community as well, just by virtue of being a spouse to my husband. And so the very fabric of the community was my home and Cambodians are my people. And so I think part of that is to not only know when to step in, but when to step back as somebody who is not of Cambodian heritage. And I would add Lorraine in terms of 
your being accepted as part of the Cambodian community, that you were able, because you were entering as somebody who wasn't Cambodian, you were more mindful of what was really important for us to be present at. What ceremonies, what celebrations, what events. And that was really helpful for community entry. You know, she would say, this is a really important celebration. I think it's really important to make an effort to come in from Western Mass and go into Lowell to be present for this. And it went a long way in community being able to see that you were celebrating what they were celebrating and having the humility just to attend and the cultural respect. So I think what I'd like to sort of end with is that CBPR is more than these tenets of what constitutes community-engaged research. It's about really thinking about how you're going to demonstrate your commitment to a community, your respect for a community. And to keep that respect intact, regardless of what the Institute might demand of you. And because they're often at odds. And I think that keeping that front and center really shows your commitment to the process and your authentic respect of the process. I would like to thank each of you, Dr. Nelson Peterman, Dr. Cordero, Dr. Sabiko, and Nora Tang for joining me today on this podcast. As I said at the top of the show, this episode is a part of the HPP celebration of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander Heritage Month. This is the first for us and hopefully the beginning of an annual tradition. This year, HPP was proud to honor two papers as our 2022 papers of the year. And both are papers by Asian American authors. Through Our Eyes, Hear Our Stories is the account of a photo voice project documenting and archiving the experiences of Asian community in Southern California during COVID. This paper was written by another community-based research team. The lead author was uh, Fuk To. Our other 2022 paper of the year is a moving commentary entitled The Tai Chi of Photo Voice by Dr. Caroline Wong. You can find both of those papers open access and free to all on the HPP website, as well as a special Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month collection open throughout May 2023, including the paper we have been discussing today. Be sure to watch this space for another episode in this series. We will add them to a growing playlist of AANHPI voices on the HPP podcast. As always, you can find links to all of these resources in the show notes for the episode. Thank you again to our guests and thank you to Arden Castle, our podcast editor for editing this podcast. I am guest host Maury Chom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'll be back soon with more episodes of the HPP podcast. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.